being in a rich community of faith that understands justice and love and life and death and the messiness of it all has taught me so much and has enriched my life. Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. Last month, after nearly a decade as Franklin and Marshall's chaplain, Susan Manasian moved on, back to her home state of Virginia. Her tireless work on the college campus and all across Lancaster County was renowned in both religious and secular circles. There isn't much need for an extensive introduction here because she tells her story thoughtfully and in beautifully chosen detail. That is, after all, part of her vocation as a reverend. I really like conversations like these because they deal with potentially controversial topics like faith and God and religious conflict. And in future, What We Will Abide will feature more of them. And as I see it, there seem to be two camps, those who believe and those who don't. But we all know that there's more to it than that. The spectrum is wide and the variations in between are legion. Faith community seems like a term that's been conjured up to assuage the fears that arise when words like Jesus or piety or God or Allah are used. People seem to shy away from using the proper names of religions for fear of stepping into some giant semiotic hole. Still, I found that Lancaster is yet again unique in this regard. You actually can talk openly about religion here, and in a way that I haven't ever before, I've talked openly about religious practice, belief, and jurisprudence, with Mennonites, Quakers, Catholics, and Muslims, and others here in Lancaster. Maybe it's the place. Maybe it's me. But probably a combination of both. I'm Susan Manasian. I am the college chaplain at Franklin and Marshall College until Tuesday. So this is Saturday. So that's kind of interesting that I'm on my way out of this particular position And uh, I'm moving to Charlottesville, Virginia on Wednesday. Virginia is where I'm from. I moved here. We do detect a hint of an accent. I moved here from Richmond in uh, 1985 to go to Lancaster Theological Seminary. Why did you go from Richmond, Virginia to Lancaster, Pennsylvania? That's such a good question. Well, when I figured out that I wanted to go to seminary, I looked for United Church of Christ Seminary. That's the denomination I'm a part of. And I wanted to find one that I could still get in the car and drive home in the same day. I come from an Armenian family. And so being able to get back home to family uh, was a priority. Is there a big Armenian community in Richmond? Uh, More than Lancaster. Yes. They actually have a church in Richmond. Um, My dad was divorced before he married my mother. They both were Armenian. But because of that, they couldn't get married in the Armenian Orthodox Church or the Episcopal Church in those days. So they eloped. And then uh, the committee said, you still have to have a wedding. They went to a church. The guy agreed to do the wedding. And it was St. John's Evangelical Reformed Church at that time. And later it became St. John's United Church of Christ. Okay. So that's how I became UCC. Okay. So two um, members of our Social circle were clergy, and when they heard I wanted to go to seminary, said, oh, you have to go to Lancaster. So I said, oh, okay, and it was because they graduated from Lancaster. Okay. And I just went, 
Okay, because the idea of going to seminary was a very strange thing. I mean, that was something that was not on my radar until the year that I decided to go. I never thought this was something I was going to do as a vocation. What did you think you were going to do as a vocation? Well, I graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University with a degree that had special education, recreation therapy, and dance. And I thought I was going to be a dance therapist. I couldn't get a job as a dance therapist. Uh, Ronald Reagan was elected as president at the, around the time of my graduation. And so dance therapists were kind of, uh, had a hard time getting a job. And they figured music therapists could do the movement and the music. So, so what ended up happening is I went to work at Virginia Home for Boys. Mm-hmm. And then I left that and went to work for my brother-in-law. He was a safeguard business systems uh, distributor at the time, and I was his customer service rep. So I was working in that job from 9 to 5, and I was doing church work from 5 to 11, and eventually something had to give, and the the church won. (laughs) So so I decided to come to seminary, and I thought I was going to work on the street with prostitutes and homeless people because I was terrified to take a preaching class and lead worship, even though watching my pastors preside over the communion table and preaching is what kind of inspired me to sense my sense of call. And I did do sacred dance in our church, so that also was a part of it. Um, So I I, I waited until the last minute to take a preaching course. And I took that course, and it was at the end of three years of theological education, and it changed my life because I fell in love with it. And I realized the power and the responsibility of being in the pulpit and what you can do when you have a voice that you can use to preach. There was a time when I would just say I'm an activist. Now I say I'm a contemplative activist. Because for me now, at 58, and I don't know if age has anything to do with it, um, mindfulness has become a part of my practice the past five years, but very more intentional uh, in commitment the past three. And that has made my social justice compulsion and commitment richer. Not when I had a prayer life. Prayer life is great, but it was filled with lots of words. The mindfulness piece about being awake and being in the present moment and taking time for quiet, that's been the best. I realized that I could be filled with rage about things that I wanted to see change. At the end of the day, I was not sleeping with the rage and then I was not being proactive, really, and functioning in a healthy way. What makes you rageful? Oh, I mean, you want the list? When I see or hear or experience injustice, there's like something inside of me that's like a button that gets pushed. I can't explain it intellectually. I just know that that's something that happens. I don't know if it's from my life experiences that get triggered by that or what, but... Um, my mother raised me in a home that saw the connection between how we understood God, how we experienced God, how we understood our sense of faith, and then putting it to work in the world. 
So what did she say? Well, let me give you an example how of, some, of it. Moment. Yes, let me give you a moment yeah. that I have said, told this story before, but I love it because it's it just, it's a great example. Well, the pastors used to always call my mother at all hours for her to go take care of people uh, who would call them because they needed somebody who's willing to go to that neighborhood that nobody else in the congregation would go into. Why was your mom? You my mom qualify? did that. She was just, I, I, you know, I wish I could tell you all of that. All I know is that she would say, if you love Jesus, you have to do these things. And, um, when my father died, she became an electrologist. She did permanent hair removal and she started to get some clients that were people that decided to become more at home with their own sexual identity and orientation. And one day I was playing receptionist in her front office. I was about like anywhere from seven to nine, 10, like that. I don't know how, the exact age. And you know, those pink while you were out pads that you take notes, you know, and I, she'd let me play receptionist. So one day, this person walked out of the door of the room where she, all the magic happened. And the person left and I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, that person looks like a she, but I thought he was a he, but he doesn't look like a he anymore. What is he? And without missing a beat, she turned to me and said, she is trying to become who God created her to be. So that th- was it. So this is fascinating to me because on several levels because... Well, and we're talking about the 60s. Well, that's what I was going to say, is that this is a person, in my mind, who's way ahead of her time. Very much so. Uh, and also a person who, so, okay, so for me and for a lot of people, Jesus is a loaded term. Yeah, sure it is. And you, you do this because you love Jesus. That can mean any number of sure. things. And it doesn't necessarily uh, sort of fit in my mind as someone who would be as open to transgender people yeah, for example i get you so uh, that's but see i think it's because she knew what it was like so we she was born in richmond virginia where i was born uh she experienced what it was like for her father to die she was 10 when her father died i was four when mine died she knew what it was like to be in a household with a mother for whom english was not a, her first language she couldn't read at that time um so she she grew up with prejudice and um, she understood that. She went from being in a family that was very affluent to one that struggled. She was a widow in the 60s at 39. Um, you know, went to the bank for a line of credit and they said, well, your husband has to sign. She says, well, he's six feet under the ground, you know. But <laughs> she was persistent and they eventually gave her a line of credit. I mean, so I think because she experienced in her own life moments of injustice, she stayed awake to that. And instead of becoming somebody who says, well, I did this so you can do it. She never was one of these pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Instead, she became empathic because of her experience and said, because I've experienced this, I don't want other people to. And that's the household that she raised us in. But she also said, I'm not raising you for to be okay today. I'm raising you for when you're 18 and you're on your own. So she was very much ahead of her time. Um, you know, just very she was compassionate um she was very brave and uh, i'm very grateful for all the lessons that she taught me 
So, you know, her idea of Jesus was Jesus, the revolutionary, Jesus, the one who turned the world upside down, Jesus, who broke the barriers. Um, She very much identified with the fact that Jesus revealed his resurrected self to women first and told them to go tell the story to the men. So, uh, and she would say, why can't we say humankind? We can say that just as fast as we could say mankind. She says, why? This is ridiculous. She went to the mission field as a volunteer for one year to Las Vegas, New Mexico. And she went into this place that was uh, supported by an ecumenical effort in Las Vegas. And uh, she quickly learned that the place needed a lot of work. And that it had a reputation of being run like a brothel where people could come and stay like for two weeks. Well, my mother shut the place down. She threw out all the pictures of Jesus. She left one cross. She cleaned it up, painted it, got new mattresses, and she enforced the two-day rule. So that she could hear people in the town say, uh, you can't go to the Samaritan house and stay long anymore because the grandma who's there (laughs) has changed the rules. It was amazing, though, because here she was. She was like 4'10", little Armenian woman, and these people would come in with guns and knives, and she'd say, give them to me, because she put them in a safe that was in her room. Um, But when the churches asked her why she removed all the pictures of Jesus and everything, she says, People will meet Jesus in the food that they eat on the table. They will meet him on the clean uh, mattresses that they sleep in. And that cross is a symbol of what we're about. And she said none of the pictures of Jesus seem to be relevant to how this was happening before. So she tra- she totally transformed the place. So is uh, clearly that has tremendous impact on you. But is that yeah. your Jesus or, or who is Definitely. yours? Okay. How would you, how would you, okay, so then how would you kind of like adapt your Jesus to, to the world now? Well, see, I don't know that it's really adapting. I think pe- people see Jesus in a very different way. I mean, I said this, a friend of mine, you say Jesus, and then if there are 10 people in the room, there are 10 points of view about Jesus. I don't read our holy texts uh, as like a rule book. It's inspired. It's the inspired word of God. It is a canon that was put together by human beings that decided what was going in it. Does that make it irrelevant for my life? No. But I read the holy texts for inspiration and as a guide. And sometimes I disagree with what I'm reading about. So that requires me to dig into what's the context. Who was he? Who was the writer writing to? What was going on at the time? And I think, I think we don't, people don't want to do today is think beyond 140 character tweet. Well, uh, right. And so to go deeper into anything, we go wide, but we don't go deep. We don't take time. We're all into this microwave theology. We're into everything that's quick. So when you reach some, see, read something in the biblical text that you struggle with, people don't want to struggle with it. What I read in the text in the Gospels that tell the Annunciation, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, is a powerful narrative that inspires us to live in an inclusive, uh, justice-oriented kingdom of God. And so I think that's what we are called 
to try to help make happen. People sanitize Jesus to the point where he's this like little, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, little sweet cherub. And it's like, that's so like not who he was. Do you have a sense of the historical Jesus? Who is the historical Jesus for you? Do you when you put the text together, uh, and you, I mean, maybe you're looking just at the biblical text, the Gospels, or maybe you're looking at extra biblical text too, up to you. But who is your historical Jesus? Because oh. I, I, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And when I teach Christianity, even though I'm, you know, an amateur at best. Uh, We're I, all amateurs. Fair enough. We really are. He's a rugged, to me, yeah. Jesus is this I would say had to be a very rugged, strong individual. But I also think he was probably cocky and well, probably certainly in Mark and, is. and had had a significant ego to stand up and to be in resistance to a system that was oppressive. So this is maybe unfair because this is what direction I'm going to go in. But like, there's definitely like an amalgamation of the character because all four gospels have a very different, different approach. Lens. So how do you? But they were writing to different communities, certainly. You know, with different Cer- sense, a different sure, sense of sure. what was urgent. So you, you I know, mean, it strikes me then, and that, and you can confirm this that that you see, yes, there's like a. A continuum, but they're also very individual pieces, and so you're you're willing to like kind of dance within that. Oh, sure, because space. none of them are the totality of the story in and of themselves. Do you need the totality of the story, or like, would you be I thrilled think, if it exists? Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It might mess up the conversation if it was that neat and clean and could be tidy. Yeah. I look. I find communities that want to have a literal point of view of any faith tradition and that goes for judaism islam christianity buddhism hinduism any any belief system even for atheists any belief system that is so uh fixated on being absolutely the truth and uh has no room for um, other or maybes or what if or I wonder is dangerous. And that's why we're in the place that we're in. We just had a predominant group of white evangelical Christians who are biblical literalists. And I, sometimes I wonder if they are as literal as they say they are, because if they were, I don't know how they could vote for Trump. I'll say it. Um, so they put in somebody who is, to me, the antithesis of the gospel. And, uh, you know, it, it's frightening to me. But then I'm a part of the Lancaster Interfaith Coalition with people who come together because we respect that uh, we might each have a view of God that enriches each other's lives. But I, I was a speaker at the synagogue, Sherry Shomayim, last night. And I said, you know, whenever I've walked into the doors of that synagogue, when I walk out, I'm a better Christian than when I walked in. Because being in a rich community of faith that understands justice and love and life and death and the messiness of of it all has taught me so much and has enriched my life. So the people have enriched my life. So hard, fast, um, a theological worlds, uh, other than my own, of course. <laughs> is then 
this a- antipathy, it's got to be based on something external, right? The the sort of the the supposed hatred between Muslims and Jews and Muslims and Christians and even Christians and Jews. Like, it, it it's historical. We look back through mm-hmm. history and we see, you know, medieval this and... and oh, sure. And, uh, crusades and... We've all been horrible to each other. So, like, like what is your sense? Because as a history teacher, I have my own, but I'm interested in what is your sense of what those externalities are and and just from your own, like, I don't know, trip through history as an Armenian Christian, right? Because then, and that leads to the second part of the question, which is much more pointed, which is the Armenian genocide, which you have to find a way to reconcile or not. Well, here's the thing. I think there's like narcissism, tribalism, and uh, egos run amok for power. Okay. Okay. Um, So you mentioned the Armenian genocide piece. So let me start with that. So as an Armenian, uh, like my family, all came from southeastern Turkey. They were all living in the Ottoman Empire. My grandparents left uh, and got out before the genocide happened. But everybody else was there. One cousin uh, survived. I have two uncles by marriage who survived, but they all married into the family system. So... um, I grew up with hearing the narrative that Armenians were killed mainly because they were Christians. It is true that a part of the story was this dynamic of swords being uh, put to their throats and commanded to convert to Islam uh, to reject Christianity or they'd be killed. It's, that is not untrue. What is untrue is that that is the only reason the genocide happened and that that is a narrative that happened to absolutely everybody, and it is not. So Armenians were one of the ethnic minorities that were growing in that part of the region. They started to become economically, politically, and intellectually more powerful. That was threatening. I see that same kind of dynamic happening in the United States today, where people who are who as long as they were perceived as a minority that had no power, no economic influence, no political influence, no intellectual uh, collateral, then they, you know, as long as they didn't have those things, we would tolerate them. Once that dynamic changed, then they became a threat, a threat to a power that was already starting to lose its weight. And so then out of being threatened, I think the Ottoman Empire, the rulers in that were uh, narcissistic. I think they were tribalistic. I think they were elitist and egos run amok. And so the one way you take care of a problem that you haven't been able to take care of by indoctrinating everybody to one way of believing or thinking or living is to exterminate them. So they tried to uh, eradicate Armenians from the land. 1.5 million Armenians were killed. Um, So that's a devastating uh, thing to think about. When I have kids in a class, I'm talking to them. I ask the whole class to stand up, and then I ask two-thirds to sit down. And I say, okay, those of you who are standing, that's who's left, who was left. 
it nowhere reaches the numbers of who died in of the people who died in the Holocaust. But percentage, when you look at the percentage, Jack Paskoff talks about this to the Jewish community a lot. When you look at the percentage of the populations and the impact, it's extraordinary. And the, what also happened is that when Hitler was questioned about his success and was he worried he'd get caught by the extermination of the Jews. He, the famous quote is that Hitler laughed and said, who remembers the Armenians? Right. You know, so the records and uh, what is available uh, in Turkey now, it's not as clean as what the Nazis left for people to read and see later. Well, certainly the leadership, at least in Turkey over the last decade, has obfuscated any sort of hope for, I would imagine, any kind of clarity. In that. Yeah, they're, not, they, they're never going to own up to they're it. They're never going to own up to it. And part of it is out of fear, I think, because they think that then they will lose their lose land, they will lose money to redress yeah. the situation. Um, and the United States has never uh, acknowledged it as an Armenian genocide because Turkey is viewed as an ally. Right. So I, I mentioned that because you raised it, but let me say how the, where the connection is. You can either be an Armenian that understands that we have survived the genocide and in fact have really been the ones that are, or have succeeded because every time we are born and are educated and move further in our lives, we succeed. Mm-hmm. I, a friend of mine says we're the, we are the embodiment of resurrection because we were supposed to totally die and we now live. So, but here's the thing. You can either take that experience and say, what have I learned from it? And what would Jesus call me to do in being someone who is now a uh, second generation born in this country um, as an activist for the recognition of Ar- the Armenian genocide? Uh, I can either be proactive in a global sense and an interfaith sense and be about building up the kingdom of God so genocides can be prevented. Or I can become Islamophobic and say, because of the Ottoman Empire being the way it was, then I'm going to hate all people who are Muslim. So as I've been an activist, uh, kind of pushing against some of the Turkish community in Lancaster and some of their political ambitions here, I've at one time people said, well, she's um, Islamophobic and these kinds of things. And I go, no. Yeah. And I go, no, I have no issues with Islam. I have an issue with the Turkish government. So if you're going to perpetuate lies of genocide denial, I'm going to block you every time I can because you're lying. And my work is about helping people come to the truth. So, you know, in our house, we never allowed our daughter to come to an understanding of hating Turks because I don't believe that. I don't believe the gospel teaches me to hate Turks. I do believe Jesus has given me, given me a model to be resistant to an oppressive Turkish government and to uh, resist in this country when I come across people who are Turkish who are in denial of my people's experience. So that, you know, and I don't hate Turks. You know, why would I? My people come from that part of the world. Increasingly, you know, over the last few years and the opportunities that have presented themselves whenever I sit down with um, Palestinians, immediately the conversation goes right to, because we both sort of understand that it's the government's 
that are operating here and not the individuals who live every day with hate in their heart. There are those people. In fact, some of them are my family members. I'll be the first to admit. But what we're talking about, this is not about um, religious animosity. This is about imperialism. It's mm-hmm. about colonialism mm-hmm. um, and the subjugation of a people for the purposes of stealing their resources. And, um, and and what do you do when you steal people's resources and land? You also have to subjugate them, enslave them, um, kill their language, so you kill their culture. It's exactly what the Europeans did here to the Indians is what I think Absolutely. the Israeli government is doing to the Palestinians. And what we're still doing to the Indians. Uh, yes, exactly. Still, I, still doing. And so, like, that's the level that the conversation has had. Um, what I know to be true is that, like, I don't really know that there are a lot of conversations like that that are happening on this level. It stops right here. Like, y- y- you know, you, you're claiming the Israeli government is oppressing Palestinians. Clearly, you're an anti-Semite. Like, in your case, we are like... Wait a second, Turks, why don't you, you – know, oh, clearly you're an Islamophobe. And so that's easy. You're talking earlier about we need things to be very literal, very, mm-hmm. very dry mm-hmm. and easy. That's that's where that happens. Okay, so – and and then – and here is – here is the other reality, especially for me as a Christian. I have to own the role that uh, – Political domination and religious oppression have lived together beautifully in how they how they have been toxic in the world. I can't deny that the church and its connection and how it's been woven into political systems has not been a part of the problem. I mean, white supremacy is is a bed that has been made with the the coming together of governmental power and religious power. So I would love to take only the beauty in it and say it's all so beautiful, the faith and the religion. But the God, the, the Christian Bible has been interpreted in a way to help people support slavery, right? I can't say that that hasn't happened. I can't say that the texts that they look at are not Saying what they said. Substantiating that. I'm, this is why I say, and we have to be brave enough as people of faith to say, but I'm not going to do that. How we can say no to our own uh, communities when we know and believe in our hearts and know that such a belief could lead to destruction of other people. And we're not willing to say that, you know. Um, do I think all Armenians are perfect individuals? Absolutely not. We're human. We're like everybody else. Armenians are not all angels like uh, Turks are not all devils. I mean, if you're going to put that dichotomy out there, I mean, it, it just, that's not true. So what I try to say is, you know, it is just as easy if we, if we invested our time, our energy, and our resources into communities and gatherings where we intentionally say we're going to be looking for mining out the beauty and the best of who we are. What would happen if we took everything we spend on slaughtering each other into that kind of an investment? What would happen in the world? Well, that kind of question just saddens me because I just think about, you know, a lot of times I think about exactly how much money is spent on 
all kinds of slaughter, whether it's industrial slaughter of the earth or right. uh, in, you know, enslaving other human beings or, or wars of conquest. And I'm like, I don't see... Our prisons. We change the names of the same forms of oppression and destruction because we can swallow it a little bit easier yeah. and rationalize it's it, like right? When, you know, when a company like uh, Philip Morris, right? Like, oh yeah, grew up with it. Oh yeah. Let me ask you this: yeah. uh, What is the job of a chaplain? That's an excellent question. The easy. What I normally say to people is that my role. As an interfaith chaplain here at FNM, okay. has been to provide spiritual opportunities for people who are looking for them, and to protect people from having any they don't want to have. <laughs> so I am here to help resource uh, the religious clubs that are student run to have what they need to do what they do. Um, I organize community partners that work with some of their student groups from outside community. Um, I help start the mindfulness program here at FNM. I have actually baptized a baby. I've dedicated three babies. Um, I've done, this is a stack of memorial services I've done since I've been here, um, of students, faculty, staff, retired faculty in that stack. Um, I've officiated at weddings. This room has been used to do a lot of one-on-one pastoral care. Um, the Interfaith Student Council has operated out of this office. We went for training uh, at NYU for the Faith Zone project that's about religious literacy, so we've tried to be available on campus for that. Um, I go to concerts, sports events, um, plays, lectures. I am a guest presenter at some classes. Sometimes faculty have me come and speak in their classes. And uh, it is a vocation that has taught me the value of the ministry of presence. So when all the programming is done and everything else is done, um, sometimes just being in the room with other people when they're doing things, and then when the whole room is talking about a topic, but nobody's bringing up God or asking the theological question, I might feel compelled to do that. I don't do it without having a real question in mind. Um, but that's what, I, that's what I've been doing for nine and a half years. I'm going to make an assumption that it's, it's sad to go. It's, it's a mixed. It's mixed. I have, I have been ordained for 28 years. And in the 28 years of being an ordained ministry, I have been the kind of person, as I reflect back, who likes to go into place and provide or do what I think God is calling me to do that isn't there yet. And then when I've done what I think I've been called there to do, I get a sense that I've done all that I can do and all that a place will allow me to do. And then I go, okay, I wonder what God has in store for me next. So, um... This place has been such a gift for me because I love the intellectual stimulation. I love being with uh, in an interfaith context. Um, someone said to me at FNM, you'll find people that are religiously curious, the religiously committed, 
the religiously indifferent and the religiously hostile, you know, and they're all here, but it's a microcosm of the real world. And I've loved being here for that. But I have had a sense of call to uh, go back to the parish. Um, I want to get back to preaching uh, because I don't get to do that here. I mean, now if you ask the students, they go, yeah, Rev preaches a lot all the time. But I mean, there's something about being the discipline of sitting with the text all week and then proclaiming something on a Sabbath day in a community that's gathered as a people of faith. And I miss that. I miss presiding at communion. I miss doing baptisms. And I miss that kind of uh, community that's focused on in a particular tradition. Um, I'm Christian, but in my role here, I'm doing interfaith work. It's really different. Given the world the way it's become, and I will say this political cycle since it started early with the primaries and watching how the progressive Christian church is silenced so much or isn't loud enough. Uh, it tries, but this other voice within Christianity gets all the press, all the sound bites. I've had this real compulsion to get back into a community that values that. So when Sojourners United Church of Christ became open in Charlottesville, Virginia, I, um, I've watched them from a distance for quite a while, actually since they started as a new church. And they are open and affirming to the gay community. They are a multicultural community. Um, they care about being a witness of social justice in Charlottesville and the world. Um, I decided, let me put my name in to be considered and see where it goes. Because I believe in throwing the bread out on the water and see what comes, you know, see what comes back. And I'm at a place now 58 years old that I have learned that every no I get is a yes to something else. So I was ready for them to say no to me um, each stage of the way because I am who I am. I mean, I don't hold back. You know that. I mean, I just am who I am. So you're either going to really like it or you're going to say, get me the hell away from her. So, um, but each stage of the process, I got a yes. And you know how that on an app, when you're downloading an app, that little circle that goes around and it kind of goes real fast and then it can stop. And you're waiting for that circle to close and it to pop and the word open. So, you know, the whole time I'm in the search process, process, I've seen that app thing download. It goes fast and then it just stops and I'm waiting for the right thing to close and then that open to pop open. When I finished preaching the sermon at my candidating weekend in January, which was the Sunday before the inauguration. What was your topic? Vocation is autobiography. My, my neutral pulpit was the weekend after the, of the election. That was interesting. Um, I, my body was like, I was on fire and it was like, you know, I've heard people talk about the Holy spirit and it was like, I just felt it. And I knew that I was in the right place. And uh, my brother-in-law turned to me when everything was over and he says, I'm so happy. He said, because you found your people. I feel like the 32 years, you know, I came to Lancaster for three years and I was going to leave. 
And I've been, my bags have been packed, I think, all that time. I think the past 32 years has been a part of preparing me for this call. And uh, my husband died three years ago. My daughter's in college now. And I just feel like I'm at a place where God is saying, okay, now you are ready. And, um, and it's time. In the Hebrew Bible, it's often quoted that, um, I think it's, I'm not sure it's Elijah, but maybe it's Elisha. One of them. I don't remember which. It's the voice of God that comes to him, a still small voice, right? So um, I've always liked that because that's the one that sort of makes the most logical sense to me. Um, I've never experienced that. And um, at various times in my life, I've been very skeptical of that and skeptical of people who say that there's a voice that comes yeah. to me, like you were saying. Right. Me too. Okay, that's good. Um, I go, why is God so clear with you and not me? Right. Hello, right. I'm here. I, in fact, I even said, okay, God, I need a burning bush moment. None of this subtle stuff. Please be very clear. You know? So what, yeah. is, what does the voice sound like? I mean, I don't mean that literally. Are no, we... no, I hear you. You know, I the only way I can express it is that there is kind of like this, like, knowing. And then when I think I have experienced it, I have to always stop and sit in some silence. And I always say, please help me be convicted of this so that I know that it's not just, it's not just what I want to hear myself say. Um, in this search process, I have said, I know I, if I leave Franklin and Marshall college in Lancaster, I want to go back to Virginia cause I want to go home, but I don't want to just go home. It has to be a call. So as much as I'm aching to be with my family again, it's got to be the right thing that God's calling me to do because I'm not finished yet. And all I can say to you is that uh, I think I, when I am the most honest I can be at the risk of losing something that I would really want and it comes to me, I think God's in that. Here's my final question for you, um, and I imagine you have a very long answer, but um, limited as you wish. So, um, you know, being a preacher and Armenian, you know, you're sunk with the, this. With, okay, with, God. The, with, with the yammering. The verbose. Uh, no, it's okay. Yeah, go ahead. It's such a miasma out there right now, and um, faith communities, as you've alluded to, and as we talked to before we started recording, are so fractured in so many ways, and there are all these externalities, like we were talking about. What would be a universalist message that you think could fit within any faith community or even beyond faith community. Actually, it needs to go beyond faith communities in their traditional sense. Mm -hmm. What is the message that all of us need? I see you're smiling, so you got it. It's real simple. It's one word. Love. Because believers and non-believers can agree on that. And all you have to do is ask the question, is, is this love? It it really isn't any more complicated than that.
My thanks again to Ari Gold for original music. And if you go to my website, samschindler.com, that's S-A-M-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R.com, you could see original artwork for this episode and others by Russell Fultz-Smith. Please feel free to comment on this episode there or leave an iTunes review. As always, you can find older episodes of What We Will Abide on the website and on the What We Will Abide Facebook page. Thanks for listening.